Welcome back to another episode of Life with Lamb Tam here with Todd Morgan, a speaker on mental health and suicide prevention, host of the Stigma Stoppers podcast and CEO of Outside the Locker Room or OTLR, a mental health charity that aims to provide education for mental health and other social issues. And I'm sure we'll get very deep into it, but welcome Todd. How are you feeling, mate? Feeling good, mate. Really excited to be on here. It's going to be great. I mean, listening to all your episodes over the last couple of weeks, so it's pretty exciting far out any feedback no we'll do that after <laughs> no it's, it's been really good uh really interesting what was the lady i was listening to this morning and she started seeing spirits in the hospital oh, like, that, yeah yeah that one was wild but this one's <laughs> your story mate um i'm so honored to have you on the life with them podcast i have done a bit of a deep dive a bit of a stalk and had a look at the things that you're up to in the community and and obviously in your own personal life as well and i'm very very excited to speak about it so welcome for the listeners can you talk to us a bit about yourself if you can in about 30 seconds or so 30 seconds or so <laughs> uh, i think you did a pretty good in the intro so um CEO of Outside the Locker Room, took over about just over two and a half years ago from Jake who founded it in 2015. Our main focus is to go into sporting clubs and provide mental health education uh, and welfare support with partnered welfare services there. Um, And then just be that sort of safety net for most of those communities just in case something happens uh, with mental health or uh, they have a few questions around what's going on with their culture inside of their own sporting club, then give us a call and we can provide them with their expert, um, uh, with expert knowledge and a guidance on, on where to go. Uh, so there's lots of facets that go into what I do. And then just me, I'm a footballer, mate. I love football. Coach the twos down at North Ringwood, back for Collingwood. So I probably just lost half your list on base there, mate, but that's fine. I don't really care. Um, and then, yeah, just happy, man. Happy friends, family, all, all the fun stuff, two dogs. It's all good. The premise <laughs> of the podcast uh, today is mental health. For the listeners, can you define what mental health means to you? Well, I think when any, as soon as someone says the word mental health, everyone just goes with the negative, like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, you know, or even just waking up having a bad day. That's where most people's minds go to. And one of the big things I think when we talk about mental health is it's holistic. It's everything that encompasses it. It's the fun times, it's the happy times. It's also the neutral times where we spend so much of our time at a neutral base with our mental health. We're working, we're out with you know friends or family and we're just sort of sitting there watching TV. That's a neutral base of mental health. And then we always have these ebb and flows where we're not always happy and over the top and you know life's incredible, but we're also not always down at that depressed end. There, even though there are people that are down at that end, there's always a mixture and a change. So for me, when it comes to mental health, it's not a taboo, it's not a stigma type of uh conversation to be able to have, but it needs to encompass everything. So it's not just, oh, so how are you going? How's your mental health? Oh, well, today's bad or three weeks ago, I had a really bad day. I'm actually asking you about all the good stuff as well. And I want you to tell me about all those good stuff so we can celebrate it and enjoy it, enjoy life as much as we possibly can. 100% mate. I think the neutral aspect and actually respecting both sides to mental health is a very refreshing perspective. I think a lot of the times we're either trying to negate it and go into like the really positive stuff and like, how can we fix you? How can we get you to like this level? Or, you know, are we recoverable from the position that we're in currently? Or like, are you suffering from anxiety and depression? And those words get thrown around quite often, but being able to navigate just the neutrals and having that sort of 
more passive approach to it is very refreshing. So love that so much. And it's about trying to find that neutral as much as you possibly can. And then those good times that come with it. Um, I think everyone sort of gets into a neutral, especially nowadays with social media and with photos and with, you know, watching TV shows and all that sort of stuff. We forget that the neutral can just be sitting there and watching TV with our partner and that being, um, a really amazing holistic thing for our mental health. It's a really good cup filler to sit there with family or friends or just the dogs and watch TV or sit outside and read a book or whatever it may be. They're the neutral places for mental health that are really, really needed. And we do shy away from them a little bit because it needs to be the 10 K run. That's going to make us feel incredible with our endorphins or, um, you know, something else that makes us happy, like going to play football for me, for example, but finding those neutrals, enjoying those neutrals, and then getting back to that habits of when I've got poor mental health, using those neutrals to get me out of that poor back to neutral and then hopefully back into that positive as soon as possible. Absolutely. My powerlifting coach is an incredible testament to this. He loves um, just keeping you at maintenance sort of thing. And as long as we keep you at maintenance, you'll start to progress. It's not like let's ride the highs, let's go for your one rep max and just bomb out and then you just hit rock bottom again and you have an unsustainable sort of build up. It's like an up and then a down and then up and down. Yeah, It's not linear, but it's this progression that's a bit more smooth and it's a bit more sustainable over a long period of time. So I love that idea of mental health, mate. It's interesting you say the maintenance one, a really good one that comes into mind as soon as you say it is for us a hubby. He was the um, trainer for George St. Pierre and really, really good podcast with Joe Rogan. And he's done a few others, but he talks about maintenance and neutral and with training in that he wants to go in and he wants to train and his athletes want to train every day. So there's no point in trying to go as hard as possible, getting yourself to a point, but then you've got to take five days rest. He goes, go in and just get yourself into a state of play which is really kind of neutral. And when you've done it over two years, it's really kind of boring, but you go back every day because you know, you can go back every day. You're not feeling sore. You're not burning out. You know, you're still keeping that social connection with your training. So that's the same in life. You've got to find the maintenance of play, the maintenance of life every single day. So you can continue to wake up and stay that consistent state that what you are. Todd, what does mental health mean to you? Why have you been involved in this space? Uh, it's an interesting one. Um, sort of go, I guess every time I get asked this question, it's always sort of go to the negative and probably easier just to start there and then come back into the positive, um, later on. But, um, for those that have, have probably known me before, they'll know part of this story and there'll be obviously some details that I can't go into. And I'll, obviously I'll put here a bit of a trigger warning. We talk about suicide and self-harm in the next sort of 10 to 15 minutes as we go through this. Um, but for me, sort of, it took me a long time to try and figure out where I sort of first came into identifying that mental health came into my life and, and sort of why and how I got to this point in the organization that I'm in. And I, um, it took me really long. Like I'd been working for outside the locker room for probably five years before I even went, Oh wow. Like this is, that's sort of where it started. Where it started was I was seven years old. And I remember my sister's 10 years older than I am. She was 17 at the time she came home, um, and was just distraught, like was just really upset. Mum told me, go to your room. And it's just sort of over here that unfortunately um, her best mate's little brother had taken his own life. And so as a seven-year-old, I didn't never really clicked on what that actually meant, but that was my first sort of introduction into, I guess, suicide and self-harm and what mental health could be. 
um, going through teenage years, I think we all go through ups and downs with our mental health when we hit puberty. It's, it's well documented. We're not going to go into that. You can go and read all those sorts of things, but I was one of those ones that sort of went up and down, didn't really know where I fit. You know, how does all that kind of things work? And, um, at 16 years old, walking to work at, at, at Target to be then ushered into an office to tell you that one of your managers had, had taken his own life. Um, so really sort of interesting phase there at 16 years old to be able to go through that. And the knowledge that I've got now and the knowledge that was there for mental health when I was 16 is completely different. But one of the things that they did was they told us how he did it and where, which was uh, nowadays is you don't do that sort of stuff. You try and keep the details away from it. Um, and for me, I was going to, you know, I was going to school where I had to catch a train um, every day and I'd have to go past that exact spot every day. Um, so that there was really sort of the sort of introduction for me into mental health. Um, there was a, you know, a couple more people that I had known and met, unfortunately took their own lives. Um, I wouldn't say I was close to them and I had a, that had a major impact, but it had a major impact on people around me in their lives because, you know, we were all quite young, obviously at that time. And then for me with, with mental health, you know, I played sports since I was pretty much born. I was born, your name's Todd you're back for Collingwood and you're going to play football. That's what my dad said to me. The first three things that my dad said to me. So two things came true. My name's Todd and I'm back for Collingwood, but I never really made it to AFL. I'm not very tall. So, and I was never really that good. Um, so part of it, three, two thirds became true. So sports always been huge for me. Um, and understanding the power of a sporting community and a sporting club is huge. Um, and you've only got to obviously turn on the TV in the middle of winter uh, to see football, rugby, netball, you know, parts of basketball, hockey, the Olympics is coming up. Everyone sort of stops, spends most of their nights watching the Olympics. The Australian Open's just been on. Sports, huge for everybody. It's it's massive. Um, and for me, it's always been really massive. One of my – I got asked what's one of your favourite memories and it's, you know, 2002, um, Collingwood v Adelaide um, qualifying final at the MCG. It's 27 degrees, sitting next to mum and dad, Ryan Loney streams down the wing, kicks at Anthony Rocker. Anthony Rocker kicks a 65-meter bomb goal. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. Like, I was 12. Vividly as well. Vividly. <laughs> I know exactly where I was sitting. We were just underneath level one, just underneath where the roof is. So we weren't actually in the sun. And he kicked that goal, man, and the whole place was pumping. Like, it's the loudest I've ever heard the G, and I've been there lots of times. Um, but sport, that's the power of sport. Like, I wasn't even playing. I was watching, and it was pretty amazing. So sporting clubs have always been there for me growing up playing footy and tennis and basketball and at, um, you know, 20 years old watching TV, uh, Channel 9 News come on and the first story was unfortunately a man dies in a jet ski accident and sort of jumped onto a couple of mates and found out that our mate had passed away and the footy club at the time I was at at North Ring was amazing. Like they got around us, they they really supported us as much as we, they possibly could and obviously a really difficult time for a lot of, you know, blokes that are only 20 years old going through that. And then only a couple of weeks later, one of our, our mates at the footy club, unfortunately lost his life as well. And this hit the whole footy club this time because he was really a part of it. A really incredible human being. And so to watch a sporting club get around each other to get through that difficult time. And even nowadays they're still spoken about down at the club is, is really amazing to be able to see that. Um, to be able to walk into a place and have 180 mates just because you pull on the same colored polo or, or, or jumper on the weekend is, is awesome. 
so that there was, you know, a really big eye opener for how, you know, negative things happen, but positive things happen as well around those times. And, and to see communities coming together is really important. Fast forward a, a couple more years, a mate I went to high school with, we were sort of best mates at high school. I was a PT at the time, came into the gym one night and he's like, hey mate, want to get my life back on track and was in a really disheveled state when he walked in, wasn't looking too good, um, but then became really best mates again. He started training, started, you know, turning his life around and life would hit him and he'd only take half a step back and move forward this time. So it was really getting onto his mental health, looking at psychologists, those sorts of things and um, you know, I was running, I ran a mental health awareness night at Dorset gardens. If anyone's been there, it's a crappy pub, but it's a, got a good function room there and it holds 300 people. And he came and, you know, saw my mom again for the first time in a while, picked her up, spun her around. Um, they had a good chat for like three hours, sent me a message when he got home, like really proud of you, mate. Absolutely loved it. I got to go back to the start of the night where he was like FaceTiming me to try and tie his tie because he couldn't remember how to tie his tie. So we are doing that, which was pretty funny. And he sent me a bunch of photos, like, do I look good enough? Like, is this all good? Like, he was just so excited to be involved in it. Um, and then sort of sitting there on a Monday afternoon at about 4.30 and just got a message that just said, have you heard? And I said, oh, I heard what? And I said, oh, Fitzy's taking his own life. And I was waiting at the gym for him to come in. And that's how I found out that a guy that I'd, I'd been best mates with in high school and went two separate ways. And then, you know, we sort of became good mates again later on in life had, had, had taken his own life. Um, which was really, that one was really difficult because it was like, I'd been through it all before. Like obviously when I was 20, I was now sort of 25, 26, being through that period of losing people. Um, but this one sort of really hit home and it, it's taken me, you know, I think it was seven years last year that he'd, he's been gone. Um, and it's sort of taken me until only the last couple of weeks to actually forgive myself to be like, that wasn't my fault. And it was, you know, his mum's been really good on that sort of stuff. But I'm always like, you know, I was in mental health at the time. I was seeing the signs, but I thought he was good. And, you know, his mum's been awesome. And like, you know, I saw him, mate, and we, we still didn't stop him. And, I think the other thing too for me is also like I've been to that point where he's where he was feeling. So to be able to then go when people are like, I don't know how they did it. I'm like, well, if you want to sit down for four hours, I could fucking tell you because I've been to that point. I've been to that edge where it's just sort of like, this is, I'm going to take away, you know, all the problems I'm causing for everybody else. But I'm also, there's also the other feeling of, I just want this pain inside of me to end. And we know that that's not, you know, the be all and end all there, life does get better. There are things that you can do. And it's not to say that he wasn't trying, but he also wasn't doing things that was going to help him at that point in time. Um, but there was a lot of, I had to forgive myself and it's still taken seven years to even start that journey to get there. Um, so the next couple of weeks after that, when he'd taken his own life, massive blur. I can't remember most of it. I have to go back to my mum, where I've spent most of my time living by myself. So lived at mum's for a fair bit. Um, she has to explain most of it to me inside that sort of two week period. I, I can't really remember heaps. Um, said goodbye, was still sort of working in mental health at the time. And his mum called me up and I still remember the day it was overcast chapter two, Heathmont come to for coffee. I was like, okay. And she sat at a table and I still remember the tables right next to the fireplace. And she goes, stop being a PT and go work for OTLR. 
said, okay, well, what do you want me to do? And she just goes, go tell Jake's story. I was like, well, what story do you want me to tell? And she said that if he was still playing sport and part of that sporting club community, things would have been really different because you have that 100, 150, 200 mates, both men and women that are around you. Um, but also what he was going through, and this is a big thing that people in that state don't really understand, and it's a hard hit by hitting one when you tell them, you're not unique. Your journey right now, people have gone through it, and they've gone through something similar. And everyone's like, oh, you don't, you don't know my journey. You don't know about me. And I've heard that a lot in different podcasts and from different people. And it's like, okay, I don't specifically know exactly the steps that you've gone through or I, I'm not you, so I'm not going to say I know exactly what you're going through. But guess what? Whatever situation you're going through right now, someone's been through before and they've got the tools to be able to get through it. And if you don't talk about it, you're not going to get through it. And that was Deb's biggest message was, for her, it was young men, but for what we do at OTLR, it's everybody. So I think that's a really big point to make that, um, you know, there's still two women a day that take their life and most self-harm injuries are women that present to ED um, throughout the year in Australia. Um, is that you need to speak up about what you're going through because really quickly someone in the room is going to go, oh, yeah, man, I went through that and this is how I got through it. And you go, oh, shit, like I'm not alone here. Like it's not – my situation's not unique. I'm not the only one that's dealing with this. Uh, and we see that at our sessions at OTLR is that as soon as we go, cool, what are the signs? It's usually the people you would think they've never been through anything or they've got it all figured out. They start talking up and going, yeah, I went through all these things. Um, so that's sort of how I got into OTLR – uh, unfortunately lost a few more people along the way since I started there, which is, which is hard. Um, COVID was the worst watching, watching a funeral on zoom mates just would not wish that on anybody, but unfortunately that occurred. And I guess now the whole point of, of mental health is just to try and spread the positive message as much as we possibly can. Yeah. That's my, I guess, negative story of how I got into it. There's so many positives that um, I've seen across the years. And as I said, the sporting club aspects, just one aspect. Um, but that's sort of how I, I guess, got into mental health and um, yeah, sort of fell into it really. No, no training, no study, no nothing. And just my mate's mum said, go and do this. And I went, okay, sounds good. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I've, that's so much to go through at such a young age and to come out the end of it and trying to make a difference. I can, only have I guess like good words of praise for you and just what an incredible story I guess so much to unpack as well like uh, <laughs> a lot to uh dive into and before we get into the positive stuff I I had a couple questions as well like you you mentioned the idea of overseeing like the breakdown in groups because of the deaths that happened um that were a bit more distant to your own personal circle can you Describe the feeling it was. Uh, can you describe what the feeling was like when it hit a bit closer to home? Uh, like when losing someone closer to home. Um, it's the feeling and everyone's different. And sort of when we go into a community and unfortunately I'm working with a few communities at the moment that have lost people not to suicides, just unfortunately lost their lives. And you, the first thing we always say is whatever you're feeling, just feel. Because if right now you're like, I don't know how to feel and I should be crying and you're not crying, don't don't stress about needing to cry or be emotional or anything like that. It'll either happen or it won't. And if however you go through this and however you deal with it, you just need to feel that. Um, and so everyone's going to be different. For me, it's I unfortunately 
it's not a good thing that I know this, so it's an unfortunate one, but I know exactly how I'm going to deal with trauma once it comes for me. So I knew when, when, you know, uh, Fitzy wasn't here anymore, I knew the next two weeks I wasn't really going to be that emotional. Like I was going to sort of put my, right, what do we need to get done? What's, what are the actions that we need to do? Okay. Funerals are coming up. Wakes are coming up. Celebration of life's are coming up. These people need support. So I'm going to go support them. I just sort of knew that's just how I always am. Um, but there's other people that will get really emotional and break down right at the start. So everyone's going to be super different. Me, I just go numb and then just focus on what are the actions. And that's, that's how I am. Um, and then I know sort of six, seven weeks down the track, that's when I'll, that's when I'll be sad. That's when I'll have my, my moment um, because it'll all hit then. And um, I know how to get through those periods and, and, but everyone, as I said, completely different. It could, could hit them yeah. in different ways. Absolutely. I guess like if on the topic of uh, losing someone, like I lost my grandma at the age of 14, but that's one of the only deaths that I've experience so like to juxtapose that with your story not to like compare or anything but I think it hits so close to home when it's part of your personal circle as well so um, I guess the message is like these things can happen to anyone um, and it's so important to be speaking about it and sharing I guess speak to us about the idea of speaking up I think it's so it's getting better it definitely is getting better but still the idea of speaking about your feelings is so taboo. There's a stigma surrounding it. Yeah. How do you navigate it? Yeah, so it's. I'm glad you brought it up. And, and speaking about your feelings probably doesn't really have a stigma or a taboo. I think we... And we sort of... We know this for a fact from some of the research we've done with our sessions, and I'll touch on that in a second, but not everyone wants to talk about their feelings. And they... Not everyone wants to sit there and go, these are my deepest, darkest fears because they've probably worked through them. Now, to give you an example of this, we worked with the Victorian police. We worked with officers from there and we took a little bit of research and, and the data is pretty cool. But one of the things that came up in that session and it transfers over into to mental health and in life in general was um, we asked sort of, why do you not go home and, and, and you know debrief with your partner? And an officer in the room went, if I go to a really harrowing incident in the morning or in at some part in my shift, I have to debrief that five times at work. So I have to debrief with my partner. I have to debrief with my direct boss. If it's really bad, then I'm going to have to go into a meeting and debrief there. Then I have to write the report and probably then debrief it with the next shift coming on. He goes, I've already worked through it because I've debriefed it five times. And he goes, I don't want to go home and then relive it again with my partner. I want to go home and do the things that I do for fun and what makes me happy, which is a big part of our programs. Because I just want to go home to my partner and just go walk the dog or go and get a coffee or go out for dinner or go for a run or just sit on the couch and have a wine and hear about their day. He goes, I don't want to have to debrief something again. And he goes, that's where the fights start. And I said, well, did you go home and tell your partner that? And he's like, no, why would I do that? And I was like, so if you explain it that way to me or to them, they're going to completely get it. They're going to be like, oh, no, well, he doesn't, they don't need to debrief again because they've already done it. They've already worked through their their trauma from that incident. Um, and I think that's the, the same for everybody. Sometimes someone's going to sit, want to sit there and go, this is how I'm feeling and I'm feeling either good or bad and I want to talk through it. But sometimes they just want to leave it for now and go and do something that they enjoy doing or, or be a part of, the community that they're a part of or be with their partner or their kids or whatever. And that's actually their therapy. 
your therapy can actually be and your self-care can actually be going to walk the dogs, which is one of mine. Mine's not going to get a coffee and sitting there talking about my feelings. But if we go walk the dogs, probably going to be like, oh yeah, today was pretty crappy and this was why. I'm not going to deep dive into it. But by the end of that walk with the dogs and a mate, I feel so much better. Um, so there's going to be, I think that what I'm trying to get across is talking about feelings will happen sometimes, but you've also got to understand you need to turn to someone and go, how do you want to be supported? That, what can I do for you? Yeah, definitely. That is so interesting interesting and like such a good perspective to have. I think like when I can sense that someone is going through something, my first thought to go to is, are you okay? Like, do you need anything? And speaking about it is like my outlet, but the fact that it might not be for someone else is so, is so pivotal as well because that person might not be ready to process anything or they might not even want to process it at that time as well. Yeah. Where a lot of people really get frustrated is when they ask someone who's going through a difficult time and that person goes, I don't know. And then they get real frustrated. Like, just talk to me, just tell me. I don't know is the answer because when you're dealing with someone who's going through a challenging time, they've got an irrational mind and their mind is like just a big jumbled jigsaw. So when you ask them what's going on, they go, I don't know. They can't put the pieces together at that time. So you just go, okay, no worries. Because in a week or three days or in an hour, they'll put the pieces together in their mind and they'll be able to go, the answer to what's wrong with me is X. But if you keep getting frustrated, that's just going to compile the problem. So if they go, I don't know, you just go, okay, no worries. Well, how can I support you? What do you want to do? So is that what you leave with? Because I can imagine so many instances where, you know, you say, okay, leave it and then, I'm just saying the worst, but mm. they might take their own life. Yeah. So if they, you be, you know, and again, that's, I guess leading with that, that's a bit of a, a tough one, but most of the time you're going to be able to understand or, or have a feeling that this is a situation that I can't just leave at this point. If we're just talking generalized, someone goes, Oh, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's wrong with me today that's okay. Hey, I'll check in with you in a couple of hours. I'll check in with you tomorrow is a really good one, but you're going to be able to get a sense. You're going to be able to get a feel from someone who is going to take their own life that you go, this is not something I need to leave at this point in time. Um, one of the interesting ones, and this comes from my, my counselor, Nat, she's pretty amazing. And we have some really good deep, we, we do work together as well. So we have good discussions outside of my sessions. But one of the things she always told me was those that have been thinking about suicide for some time will actually tell you how they're going to do it and they'll start to get their um uh, their affairs in order in some way so you'll have a feeling for quite some time that this person's probably going to take their own life but there is obviously the instances where it's just a split to second second decision but going back to the i don't know one you'll be able to know if that person's in in danger I have heard that before, like the person that is considering has normally planned it out and thought about it for quite some time. So sometimes it's hard because people think that it's a split decision, but it's something that they've been sitting on for quite some time. So I like that um, piece of advice. I also wanted to touch on the idea of like helplessness, helplessness, mm -hmm. helplessness. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess in your case with Fitzy as well, helplessness is something you would have felt immensely after. Uh, after that one? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, How did you navigate it? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Like, it sort of goes back to what I was saying before about like being okay in the neutral with your mental health and, and in life as well. Um, you go on social media, mate, 
it looks like everyone's doing something 24-7. That's not the case. Like, you can't be out on a yacht every single day for the whole life. You're just posting 17 pictures of you on the same yacht from the same day. Um, Jeez, I don't even know where I got yacht from. Um, But, yeah, navigating, I guess for me, it was always that to get through a difficult situation, you have to find action. So you have to find the steps to move forward and they, they can just be little steps. Like I'm going to get up. Okay. I'm going to make breakfast. I'm going to have my coffee. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to, you know, get my exercise in. I'm going to go back to football. I'm going to go back to my social situations, you know, go and see mates, go and see family, those sorts of things. Where your hopelessness comes in is where you just sit and you just wallow and you can't do that. You have to be finding action all the time. So for me with Fitzy and how I navigated that was really, really good social circles. My friends and family are pretty amazing. Um, I have to credit most of it to his mom and his sister who were absolute rocks throughout the whole situation. Um, Deb and Rhiannon are absolutely incredible to go through that, but also be there for everybody else was, was huge. So to have them doing that sort of definitely took away that helplessness feeling of shit. I could have done something here. Um, but they were really, really good supports and have been for a long time. And then it just sort of goes back to whenever you're feeling like that, you can't talk about them. Like you don't want to lose the memory of your mates. So when you turn around and you go, you know, they can heard Bush, uh, glycerin by Bush, which was one, one of the songs that, you know, brings back the memory all the time. You can shoot a message to someone and just go, oh, Fitz, he's on my mind today. And that's a good thing because you're not forgetting them. You know, you're not, for, and I'm especially not forgetting him. Yeah, you know, shit, I should have done X, Y, and Z. And they're like, we've been through this circle before, Todd. Like, you got to move on. And um, at times, being told you have to move on is a good thing. You have to move on from that thought of being hopelessness or helplessness and get back into just the positives of remembering all the good times I had with him, um, remembering obviously the impact he had on my life, which isn't this whole, he lost his life. The impact is now I work for OTLR. It's like, no, he was one of the greatest people ever. Um, had a huge impact on my life just by being him. And it was, you know, it's sad. I only got a short period of my life with him, but let's remember the positives and, and move that forward. Absolutely. When does the idea of processing and going out and doing things to sort of take your mind off it become a negative thing. I think I see a lot of people who go through traumatic situations and they go out to say like partying or they just don't stop yeah. to consider, reflect and just come to terms with the situation. I think it, it's, a, it's a really good point you bring up around when does it become too much? I think the, the question is when does choosing the wrong coping mechanism become too much? So there's the ability to, for people to go through a traumatic event, potentially losing someone or losing a job or going through a breakup, whatever it may be. Now, usually you go say, for for example, through a breakup, first thing is your friends go, oh, let's go out, let's get drunk, let's do this. Um, so you've got to find the right coping mechanisms. Now, having a drink and partying sometimes is okay. But if you're doing that every weekend, as you say, we already know that's that's going to be detrimental for you. Or drinking every night is going to be detrimental or drinking by yourself and, and, and having too many drinks away from a social interaction is really bad. Um, so it's about, I guess, when does it become too much? Well, it's probably too much when you notice it as being a poor coping mechanism. Drinking, going out too much, drugs, you know that's going to be bad. But if they're turning around and going... Okay, I'm going through this. 
I'm going to go and exercise or I'm going to try and put myself back into the community and socialize a little bit more, become part of a, a gym or a run club or wherever that may be, or um, join a, you know, a group in some way, then that's processing it really, really well. Or going back to doing the things that they like doing, whether that's walking the dogs a lot, um, it could be, you know, fishing. I can't stand fishing, but if people like fishing, by all <laughs> means, go for it. Could be going back to pole dancing or dance classes or whatever it may be to fill their cup back up. Now they might throw themselves a little bit too much into the exercise and you can start to go, hey, you know, you're training twice a day, every day, you're burning out. I can see that. Um, it's really a case by case. There's no real direct answer for that, but it's also looking at what the mechanism is for their self-care. And if it's drinking too much, well you can pretty much pick up on that pretty quickly. Absolutely. Um, great answer as well. Um, the idea of, I guess, feeling hopeless is something I definitely want to unpack a bit more. You know, like you're someone who's seen a lot of deaths happen in your life and that's not something that I wish anyone to have to go through. Did it ever wane on you in the sense that, hey, maybe like I don't actually have the capacity to facilitate a healthy mental health space? As in me to as go in out. you as in like going into OTLR, yep. becoming CEO, being in that space. That I didn't have the capacity to mm. do it. Jesus, good question. Uh yes. The answer is yes. Like that um, imposter syndrome of hundred percent this has I've had that my whole life, my friend. Um and yeah, it's an interesting one that we actually spoke about as a team. So every week we sort of have a, a question of of the week. You know, some random ones are like, which band would you be in if you could be in any band? Which band would you be in? Hawk, oh, put me on the spot here. Yeah. Uh, I love 21 Pilots. I don't know if anyone okay. listens to them. They're just a bit wild and funky on, on screen, on stage. So I like it. Yeah. That's a good what one. What about you? Uh, oh, man, I had so many. I'm, <laughs> I'm a massive music. I think I went in the end, I went ACDC because they just rock real hard, but like they're not overly that famous. Like they could walk down the street. <laughs> you wouldn't even know who they are. Probably that. That's, that's I love it. it. <laughs> um, but we actually had one of the questions. It's like, you know, sort of what's, I think it was one of your fears or like what's one of the most negative things about you. And pretty much a lot of the team that we've got had imposter syndrome. Like, why would anyone want to listen to us? Yeah, we've gone through a journey, but why are we sort of out there and, and doing what we're doing? And, you know, even coming on a podcast, why, why is anyone going to want to going to want to listen to what I have to say? And you don't have a degree or you don't have this, you don't have that. Well, yeah, I agree, but it's not much you can't not find on YouTube and Google nowadays. Um, agree. To be able to learn. So imposter syndrome for me is there. I battle with it pretty much every day. Yeah, going, how the hell did I even get here? Um, and I think the big imposter syndrome for me was that why did I, why have I sort of been in this industry for so long when it was off the back of just Deb going, go and tell Jake's story? So it wasn't even something that I had envisioned and I'd planned and I'd wanted to do. Um, and it, at times it's like sometimes I don't even want to go out there and tell my story the way I tell it because I don't want to go relive what I've gone through and we train our facilitators that if there's stuff you don't want to say, don't say it on the night. Like if you're not feeling it. Um, but every day I have to sort of pinch myself and go, okay, I'm in this situation. So let's make the best of it as much as we possibly can. And there's a guy who works with me, Tim, who came on board at the end of 2022, who's been really good for that. Um, in that, no, you are spreading the right message. Look at all the stuff that you've done. You know, we're doing good work. And I think with what we do, and the content that we provide at our sessions 
having it looked at by professionals and making sure it's evidence-based that we can put it in the hands of anybody. They can go out and run it and it's going to be an effective program. Um, but for me, how I navigate that just, hate. sometimes I can't even look myself in the mirror. Sometimes I just look at it and just go, the fuck are you doing? Like, what are you doing? This is fucking go and be a firefighter like you always wanted to. But I know the position that I'm in now, where we're going and sort of what we've done, I'm in the right position. I'm in the position that I need to be in. I would, I could be just a facilitator and still be happy. I don't have to be CEO, but being a part of this organization and where we're going now is definitely where I need to be. And that fight's going to be there every single day, that imposter syndrome. We just got to, I've just got to push it away and keep moving forward. Brilliant. I love that. Let's take a little bit to dive into your own story. You speak mm. about, obviously not pursuing the university degree. I think it's an overglorified thing in today's day and age. I was yep. speaking to my parents yesterday uh, at the, at the lunch table and we, we were, we were out and um, talking about degrees. My brother just graduated and um, finished high school and his mate swapped from, I think it was a science degree to commerce. And I was like, brilliant fucking decision. Like if you were going to go to uni, do that or do medicine or do law because science, no offense, is not going to serve you. Nope. It's a three-year degree of the most broad and obscure concepts. And it, then after that, you have to specialize. And after that, it's like seven years at university and you've racked up 40 grand of hex debt. And it's just one of those things that, I think are so over glorified. And if you can find something that you want to do before that, I would recommend doing that. But mate, let's talk about your story. What was your career conversation like growing up? I know you spoke about the footy, even oh, the firefighting as well. Yeah, mate. I was going to be an AFL footballer, to be honest. <laughs> uh, nah, so I think my old man worked really, really hard. Uh, so pretty much nine years target when we were growing up, didn't take a sick day just so that he could sort of put food on the table and then move to Shell and sort of watch him go to work at six in the morning, get home at 6.30 at night, do that every day. And so for me, in my head, it was always wanting to sort of sort of follow that in a way. I just thought that was really cool, like working really hard and, and getting the most out of life. So in high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You go to those career days and you're sort of like, I don't know what's going on here. Um, got to the end of sort of year 11 and you're like, shit, I need to try and pick something. Um, so I think my electives were, oh, what were they? They were like um, computer skills. I can't even remember what it was, man. It was using Photoshop. I sucked. Um, <laughs> I was no good. I did legal studies. I dominated legal studies. But I was like, Fuck I yeah. did not want to do this. this <laughs> I don't want to read text every day. This is shit. Um, so I was like, oh, I'll just be a physio. And then someone told me that to be a physio is like 98 enter score. And I was like, well, that's a fucking dumb idea. I'm not going to get there, am I? Um, so I went into health studies at La Trobe University. I was there for like three weeks. I could not find any of my classes. I think I went to like three lectures in like one tutorial. I didn't even know where, like that place is bigger than my suburb that I grew up in. Like it's way too big. It doesn't make any sense. You got to pay for parking. I got lost. The food's way too good. So I spent way too much money in three weeks. <laughs> And then I got so lost that I walked into student housing and I thought that's where one of my lectures were. And I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. This is dumb. I don't want to do this. Uh, so I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Went back and was just working at Target. Um, yeah, moved stores. It was like it was what my dad and my sister had done. I was there for like three weeks. So I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing this for the rest of my life, eight hours a day. So I ended up just moving and working in a gym. 
I needed a job and somehow fell into that. Um, never, as I said, never really had a, an idea of what I wanted to do for an actual career. I just knew I wanted to sort of be like my old man and get into something and work really, really hard. So sales in a gym, then did a PT course. So studied PT, which was pretty cool. And then did that for a little bit, but actually got offered to apply to be a lecturer at where I did the course. So I was in a, wasn't a PT for very long. Um, that came up. I was a pretty obviously loud and talkative student. So ended up getting the job and becoming a lecturer of the Cert 3 and 4 course. And that's where I learned so much. Just the people around me. We had a really incredible team. A lot of the older sort of PTs and lecturers that were there have gone on to you know, work in college sports and ahead of American soccer teams and gone on to create, you know, create their own gyms and business programs and business businesses and networking things. Like it was just, they've done some pretty incredible stuff. And for I'd me like to, to say you're on the same path. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm not in the PT life anymore, but uh, just to be able to sit there and just sponge was pretty cool. Um, throughout sort of, you know, did that as a lecturing thing and then went back into just sort of normal PT, lectured on the side when that sort of organization fell apart. And yeah, I wanted to sort of get into the fireys. Every time I got right to the end, uh, there was like 500 people for 50 spots. So I didn't, I didn't get in that time. And then the next couple of times I was traveling. So, cause it's like a 12, uh, nine month span to get into the fireys. Every time I got to a certain point, they were like, oh, you got to come back for this test. And I was like, I'm an American man. I'm sitting in Miami sick and pissed. So no, I'll just go into the next one and went to the next one. I was like in Bali, I think. So I was like, oh, I'm screwed. Uh, so firing was probably the only one where I've actually turned around and gone, shit, I'd want to do that as a career. So if I wasn't doing this at OTLR, I'd probably go and try and be a fiery. That would be where I'd go to. Love it. I think I love the story of like directionless. Uh, yeah. as well like you don't have to have this paved pathway for you that's just so programmed and hardwired into so many students in today's day and age and even with students when they're like going back onto the uni thing so i was a pt um through someone that i was working with as a lecturer it was like you can go and be a strength conditioning coach so i went and did that course then went to a, a vfl club and you have to volunteer your time and you're three there three nights a week for four hours with no pay and it's a stepping stone for if you want to ever get into AFL. So that's really what I wanted to do. Train athletes, go to AFL. And I was like, you know what? I'm renting. I can't afford four nights a week, not personal training people. So three nights a week at four hours a night, not personal training people and not getting rent coming in basically. But I did it for a preseason. Like I stuck to it. Within three nights, every single one of the the footballers that was at the club figured out everyone that had an exercise science degree was useless. They were great in putting your GPS in and then telling you how fast you ran. But if you want them to hold pads and box, they had zero idea or to give you a, a rehab rehabilitation plan. So I was looked at as when I first got there, like you're the bottom of the barrel, you're just a strength conditioning coach, just a PT within three days I was the one everyone came to because they're like, Oh, what do we do with this player? And I was like, you're the one who's been studying for three and a half years. You figure it out. But I didn't do that. Obviously helped them through it, but going to get a degree and then thinking, you know, everything after your degree, you've done three and a half years and you know, nothing. Now you've got to go and get practical skills. I know that I have to work twice as hard because I haven't gone to uni and done the degree. I haven't done the counseling degree. I haven't done the psychology degree. So I'm never going to sit here and go, I know everything. That's why I network as much as I do and try and sponge and 
if we don't know the answer, if we can't do it, let's go and find someone who has the answer and they can do it and give the business to them or, or send people their way for support. But if you're coming out of any degree from uni, most of the time from what I've seen, and this is even from counsellors, you know very little. You know what you've been taught at uni and you come out and you've got a huge ego, trust me, we'll probably bite your head off and push you back down and go, your knowledge is awesome in some aspects, but probably not the practical aspect that we need it to be. I'm glad you mentioned that ego part at the end because I think the idea of going to an, like an elite institution, coming out the end of it and thinking you know everything and looking down at others who haven't gone to this elite institution is so prominent and it's so prevalent across a lot of young adolescents as well. And it's just like, you're not all that as well, which is so hard for me to come and say because I hate beating down other people and I hate being that person. But seriously, like the ego is just out of proportion um, for a three-year degree yeah. as well. I think one of the big things we get with any of our facilitators that come through or what we call our welfare chance counsellors and psychologists or people that come and want to do some work experience, especially at OTLR, we go, look, just continue to be a sponge because you'll learn so much. And like every single day I learn something new from the people that I work with or the communities that I go to. One of my big things is your three-year degree has been great and it's going to give you a base and you know so much more than I do, which is awesome because I'm going to be able to learn something from you. But if you're going to come and be a part of this organization, you still need to be a sponge. And you're more than welcome to turn around and go, actually, no, this is a better way of doing it. And if you can show me the way and it is a better way, 100%, I'm going to do exactly what you said because everyone's got really good ideas and that idea is awesome and it's going to make us more efficient. Brilliant. But you're not going to be able to tell me what's a better way unless you take your time, sponge how we do things and then actually go, hey, you know that process you do over there? That can actually be done this way. And I'll go, dude, that's wicked. Let's do it your way. But if you come in and go, we want to change all of this, I'm going to go, sweet, thanks, see you later. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's the way to do it as well. I love your terminology of sponge. Um, it's something that I think everyone should have, like the idea that you can soak up information from anyone and anything really and any situation experience. Um, Maybe it can be anywhere. And I, my, um, my cousin's a really good example, got absolutely no social media. Um, and he actually said, you know, we're talking about social media one night and he's like, you know, you can utilize, people utilize social media for the mind numbingness of it. Or you can utilize social media and TikTok and reels and all those sorts of things. And you can utilize them as education. And so when you've, you're flicking through, like we all do, we get stuck into a 15 minute flick through and we're watching, you know, 60 second videos, which are quite interesting. He goes, but you can actually learn so much inside that 60 seconds. And I actually stole that from him and then utilized an activity we do um, at OTLR, which is you've got 60 seconds to tell someone what you do for fun, what makes you happy. And then you've got to flip and do the same thing. And then we go, right, now you've got 60 seconds to tell someone how you like to be supported and then flip and do the same thing. We're like, who's just learned heaps inside two minutes and everyone puts their hands up. But one of the things that I saw in one of the reels, and this is where you can sponge from anywhere, was one of the things that came up the other day was a podcast and they were talking to um, the host of the podcast. The host, like, my mind goes way too fast. I overthink everything. Like, I meet someone and I can envision what, how our relationship's going to be for, like, the next 10 years. And, like, this is just how my mind goes. And I'm like, holy shit, I do the same thing. Like, that's just how my mind works. It goes way too fast and I really struggle to slow it down. And the guy who was on his podcast went, you're looking at it as a negative. It's a gift. 
and I sponge that. It's completely changed my life. And that happened just before New Year's. And I'm like, holy shit, it actually is a gift, but you can sponge from anywhere. So you can sponge from Saturday night drinks. You can sponge from Wednesday breakfast with mates. You can sponge from the TV. You can sponge from a book. You can sponge from a podcast like this. If you actually sponge everything, you can pick what actually works for you and get rid of all the stuff that doesn't. 100%. I think it's uh, a great point to bring up, especially like when we do come out of university thinking like we do know it all and almost look down at people who like haven't completed a degree, like they don't have the capacity to learn. But it's such a it's such a horrible way to go about it, looking at people who haven't done the degree or haven't gone to an institution and looking at them as if they're inferior to you. It's just like not a way that we should be going about. Have you seen the new book and the new articles coming out and you like it where it's like the people who got A's work for the people who got C's? Have you seen that? No. I'm going to try and find that book I'll buy for you and send it over. I saw it the other day in the bookstore and I'd seen a few things on it, but it was like people who got C's, um, you know, they don't really come out with that ego of like, I know everything and they say, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. They're usually more creative thinking. And those that got A's the whole time and come out and they're like, right, I've got the degree. I know heaps. They're usually the ones that end up working for the C's in the end because they've got the more networking skills. They can relate to more people. They put their ego aside. I'll find it. I'll, I'll, I'll send it over to you. Please, mate. I'm on my reading, in my reading era. Oh, so it's good. I'm, dude, I'm sponging, mate. We could, we could book talk the whole time. We probably <laughs> need to do another podcast on book talk. Oh, please. Oh my God. <laughs> um thanks for sharing about like your direction as well and i it's an incredible rhetoric in terms of you don't necessarily have to know what you're doing but as long as you're sponging as long as you're reaching out to people as well these things are probably two components that will guarantee like a particular path like for you it's otlr like you would not have come across that had you not reached out or spoken out to um, people or sponged a lot of information as well and found different ways to go about your life and i guess for myself as well it's like yes i did the degree but i networked i spoke to people i put content out and you never know who's watching as well they're gonna just come across your stuff and be like this is the most incredible thing ever I want to work with you. And that's like literally what's happened as well. And it's, it's so interesting. When you see, like I think one of the big things for any of this is network as much as you possibly can, like get to know as many people as you possibly can. Like the business that creates like washers for screws, they make so much money. Now who actually imports the metal, who then presses the metal, what factory workers are in there packaging it. Like, People fall into so many different jobs that you would never have known. And a lot of people love those jobs and they get paid so much money to do it. Like the guy who makes the plastic sticks for Chubba Chubs, that guy probably, or, or girl, whoever owns that business, they probably worth so much money. <laughs> this is what keeps me up at night at 12 o'clock at night. I'm like, I wonder who makes the wrapper for extra chewing gum because <laughs> they would have heaps of cash. They would have so you, much. So, but you can fall into anything and you never know where your passion is going to come from. Some people are going to be passionate about chewing gum. Some people are going to be passionate about the clips on backpacks. Like you just don't know where yours is going to come from, but you can network and that's going to open up so many doors that if you ever get yourself to a point where you are lost or you lose your job, you can just turn your networks and go, hey, guys, who's got a job? Mm. And you can get one and you might end up loving that job Absolutely. and it being the best thing ever. And it's the idea of like just be kind as well. Why yeah. walk around going about life with a brick wall and not letting anyone sort of into that circle or your little bubble because you should be speaking to people. Like we're humans, we're made to connect, we're made to interact with one another. 100%. And look, as I said before, you know, 
I wouldn't have, I don't need to be CEO. I'm happy to go back and just do whatever. And as long as I'm still working for OTLR for now, I think one of the big things we definitely see when it comes to mental health is everyone wants to be their own boss and start their own business and do all these sort of things. It's also like, well, you can do that. But if you also ever like being a part of a team where there is no real hierarchy and you're all working towards the same goal, that's pretty awesome too. So for young kids that are out there, yeah, you can go and get the degree at uni or you can go into a job. Sometimes working for someone else isn't that bad. You don't have to have the stresses of where we're going to get our next bunch of money so everyone can get paid or um, how's this business going to survive, which which happens with a lot of business owners and CEOs. So there's positives and negatives to it, but working for someone else is, is sometimes pretty good. Like Absolutely. It's, it's something that I'm coming to terms with as well. I used to have this very like bullish idea that, you know, I wanted to be my own boss. Like I wanted to host this podcast and make revenue from that and everything. But it's like, I need to still acquire skills and sponge and learn how do I scale? Like, who do I need? What team will, will I be able to build if I'm reaching out to different people? Everyone has different skills to offer. And as long as you're aligned, I think that's like so, so important as well, especially like coming from you, the CEO as well. Mate, let's talk about um, OTLR. You're, you've been CEO for the past two and a half years. What would you say? Let's go from an optimistic point first. What's been the best thing about it? Oh, it's got to be the community. Like the community at who I work with directly every single day is amazing. Um, they all have the same vision. We want to reduce suicides. That's the whole thing. So in 10 years time, we hopefully don't exist and I can go and be a firefighter or, or cut grass. I love cutting grass, man. I don't You're know why. Grass. I love cutting grass. I love oh mowing God. the lawn. Like it's, the smell? It's just the whole thing, just like cutting the grass, making sure the edges are nice. Like, I don't know. It's weird. I get it. But I rate that. Dude, it's, yeah, I love it. It's like a meditation. I can't sit there and meditate and people sit there and they do the um and they yoga and all. I don't want to do that. I'd rather cut grass. Therapeutic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Lining it up. And yeah. Making like you actually watch it from going long to short. I'm like, that's the most satisfying thing ever. Did <laughs> you cut hair? No, no, I'd cut oh, grass. Okay. For anyone out there that wants a really good cut and grass Instagram, turf and surf. No, Surf and Turf. What a name. No, Turf and Surf, sorry. Yeah. Guy in Queensland, Mick, he's got a whole page directed to just cutting grass. It's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, Turf and it. Surf is what it is. Oh, shout out to Turf and Surf. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be onto it and you'll be like, what is this? Uh, this morning's one was a whippersnipper going around just like cutting grass and I was like, that's just... Do they just time lapse that and then... He times lapse him, oh. himself mowing his own lawn and then he posts like other videos of lawn. Yeah. Brilliant. The shit you find on Instagram, honestly, man, <laughs> it's weird. Mate, there's a, there's a market for everything. I'm not going to lie. A hundred percent, there's a market for everything. Like if you like llamas, there's pages for llamas. Yep. That's it. They're the angriest bloody animals in the world, the old llama. <laughs> um, but no, so the community is definitely the biggest one. All got the same um, destination we want to get to. Uh, the team that I've got at OTLR and what we've got at OTLR, look, most of them are at capacity because they're pushing really, really hard for what we're doing. Um, and just the communities we work, we work in going to sporting clubs or schools or businesses is pretty amazing. Like you walk in there and everyone's like, they're going to talk about mental health. This could be, you know, this could be bad or, you know, what are they going to stir up and I'm going to be triggered. But we use that holistic view. And the first question we ask is what do you do for fun? What makes you happy? And people are like, well, this is mental health. Like, where's the negative? And it's like, no, what do you do for fun? And so I did a session in Northern Territory and pretty much 95% of the people were like, we like fishing. 
And I was like, oh, so fishing's good up here. And like one guy literally looked at across the table. He's like, do you like fishing? And the other guy's like, do you like fishing? And they're like, we should go fishing. And I was like, you guys are dickheads. Like you've never spoken to each other in the fact that you both like fishing. Like this is why we're here. Because everyone has pretty similar things they do for fun, what makes them happy. So You're not unique. You're not unique. No, your journey is not unique. Um, so that's, that. you know, walking into a, a community. I was in Shepparton last week, walked in. By the time I walked out, I felt like I was part of their sporting club. And that happens every single time we go and run sessions. Or you walk into a business and by the time you walk out, you feel like you work there. Like that sort of stuff's really amazing. Um, and we're not life changers. We're not going to walk in there and solve your problems. That's just not how our program works. We're very basic, very simple. Uh, but to be able to sort of, you know, walk out of there knowing that those 30, 40, 100 people are now closer to each other because someone actually went in there and went, hey, what do you do for fun? What makes you happy? Or how do you want to be supported? Um, and they start asking themselves that question is pretty cool. Sometimes you need that though. I found like um, bringing it back to a uni context, like when we were on Zoom, no one would open their mouth and it's just like break the ice, like ask people what they like to do. Like yeah. we're all here for a reason, you know, like it's either to tick off that box or you actually want to excel in that space. So make the most of it. And that's why I got a tattoo of a magpie on my hand and a semicolon because their conversation starts when you shake someone's hand, they go, is that a magpie? And you're like, mate, talk to me. Two, 2023, let's have a chat. And they're like, 2018. I'm like, shut the fuck up, right? <laughs> fuck yourself. Uh, but I, so I got tattoos on my hands like that. Like my mom hates them, but you know, that's their conversation starters. And it's one of the things that I, I do a lot um, in my sessions is I go, right, who said hello to everyone in the room? And no one ever puts their hand up. And I'm like, right, you're going to go all get up and go and say hello. And everyone's faces drop. And they're just like, we're 20 seconds into this mental health thing. These guys are fucking wanker. And the first person they say hello to, they're smiling. By the end of it, we've got hugs and kisses. We've got dudes kissing on the cheek. We've got, you know, people tapping each other on the ass because it's, it's, it's sporting clubs. This shit still happens. <laughs> and they all sit down and then they all continue to talk for the next five minutes. And I just let them talk. Until they all go, oh, we're we going to start. And I was like, by saying hello to every single person, look at what we just created. You guys all started talking about different things. You're all smiling. You're all laughing. No one's sitting here sad because they now feel included. And I got a phone call from a mate last week and he was like, man, I hate you. I was like, why? And he goes, I just went to a new footy club and they all come and said hello. He goes, I don't know anybody's bloody names because 60 people accosted me and said hello. He's like, you've done a session there, haven't you? And I was like, yeah, I have. <laughs> and he goes, mate, they did it though. They all, every single person said hello to him. Um, so it's a real simple thing, but like seeing that sort of stuff and hearing that sort of feedback, that's one of the best things. So fucking good. It brings me back to my coach. His name's Ego. Sick fucking, sick fucking name. That's a great uh, name. Such a cool name. Uh, workshop Jim, shout out. He raised some pretty good uh, clients or kids, I would say. Like I was part of the Young Guns program there and every single time a new client would walk in, he'd say, go say hi. Like shake their hand, go say hi, look them in the eye, like ask them how their day was. And that has just stuck with me for the rest of my life. You know, like I will go and say hi to people and it's such a hard thing nowadays. I don't know why. Have you seen that? Uh, I think the people that make it hard is the people that don't go and actually do it. So if you actually go and say hi to people, they're usually pretty receptive to it. Unless you say hi to someone's girlfriend or boyfriend and then you just hands up, mate, just start blocking punches. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen anymore. But um, 
I think if you if you're talking about say going to a gym or going to a new sporting club or going to say a run club or a you know a park run or something like that, if you walk up to someone like, hey, how you doing? How long you been doing this for? It's the easiest icebreaker ever. Just hi, how are you? How long you been doing this for? I'm new down here and I don't really know anybody. Most people are going to be like, oh, cool. Like, where are you from? What do you do? And that's where the conversation starts. So how it becomes harder is if you're feeling nervous about going to say hi to someone, they're feeling nervous about you going to say hi to them. So if you just walk up confidently like, hey, how you doing? Like, am I first time here? Or, hey, I've, I haven't seen you before. My name's whatever. And they go, oh, yeah, cool. My name's this. So it's If you're fine about it, you just got to be confident and everything's all good from there. It's called an icebreaker for a reason. And it's about taking accountability as well. Like, let's just like take accountability, break that ice as soon as possible because you don't never know what kind of relationship you're going to spring out of it. No, and if you don't know what to talk about, talk about shoes. Ooh, like, okay. just... Pick something random like, oh, where'd you get your top from? Or like, where where are your shoes from? Trust me, every yeah, OTLR. My top is from OTLR. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to plug it at the start, but yeah. Mate, you okay. go to a gym and ask them where they go. Like if it's, hopefully they're not like rundown shoes, but if you're like, where'd you get your shoes from? Like I need new, I need new training shoes. Like everyone wants to tell you about their shoes. Oh, these are shit. Don't get these. These are the worst for squatting. Or like, these are the greatest things ever. Like they've made me run so much faster. Shoes or clothes is usually the way to go. Right, that. At OTLR, I guess let's expand a bit more about it. Like, what do you guys do? You host a lot of, uh, like, chats, conferences. Yeah. Incursions, excursions. What is it about? Uh, so our main – the main focus and, and what our program is is two 60-minute education sessions. So the first session is always based around mental health. Uh, so we go into sporting clubs, schools, and businesses and, and do that. But our main focus is the sporting aspect. Um. So 60 minutes, really interactive. So it's not me standing up the front or any of our facilitators standing up the front and going, hey, here's our knowledge, off you go. And everyone just sits there just going, I'm so bloody bored. Like, why do they not paint these white walls again? These are just like, it's just like, that's where my mind goes most of the time if I was listening to that. So we go, right, here's a question. You guys give us your responses. So for example, what are the signs of someone going through a mental health challenge? Well, the signs in Shepparton are completely different to the signs in Baldwin. So let's get them to tell me what their signs are because their signs could be completely different in their community as well. And if we go to a, a really rural area and it's all farming, trust me, their signs are so much different to what anyone from the city is. So brilliant, give me 17 signs. And then they list out 17 signs in three minutes. And then we ask the groups to you know, read back their signs. If you've got the same signs, tick them off. Anyone got anything different? Yeah, I've got this. Where'd you learn that from? That's a really interesting one. Oh, this is what happened. And then they start to share their stories. So it's all very interactive, very similar to a lot of other programs that are out there, just different activities as they go through. Um, and then we've got another seven um, topics that people can choose from. So drugs and alcohol, gambling, resilience. Uh, they're the three or the other three main ones that we do for the more serious ones. Uh, sorry, cyberbullying was that one. And then you've got resilience, leadership and culture, wellbeing, lifestyle, and, oh no, Todd, inclusion and respect. So there are eight. Um, we also have guest speaking spots. So we might get called up. It's like, hey, can you come and guest speak for 30 minutes and tell us your story and provide some motivation? So we'll tailor that to suit the community. So if we've got a business that goes, oh, we're really looking at leadership and like this is why, because these are our emerging leaders or we've got all of our store managers here, we'll completely tailor it um, utilizing the content from our eight other sessions, put it into a, I guess, a modified topic and then go and provide that 
um, our background, our story. So I've told you the negative story. If it's a positive day, I'll completely switch mine, talk about the positives of sporting clubs and community and all those sorts of things. Then we've got obviously all your marketing and social media so that obviously people love that sort of stuff. They're usually flicking through social media. So that's usually pretty good. Um, But the big thing for us is the welfare aspect that we provide. So we've got an app. Everyone can download the app. And then inside that is connection to a counseling service they can go to. So if you're regional rural, you might be three hours away from your closest psychologist. They're booked out for 12 months. Um, They cost $350. You're like, what do I do? Well, silver lining from COVID was everyone knows how to use Zoom now. So you can actually jump onto a Zoom call with a counselor and get support. All you got to do is press a button for that expression of interest form. They'll give you a call. You set up your time and away you go. Um, So that's where, you know, we're talking about if you don't have the knowledge sponge. Well, we didn't have the knowledge. We didn't have the resources to create that at OTLR and it's very expensive. So we went, well, what business will do that? And we went and found that business and we network with that business. So when someone comes through, we go, well, they do that really well. So go to them and that's what they do. Very similar to a couple of other organizations that we work with. You know, if there's a suicide or a, or a self-harm injury in any of our communities and Touchwood doesn't happen anytime soon, um, but they you know, will pass their, that community's details on to an organization we work with and they'll go provide that support to them. So they're not coming to us and going, they've gone, oh shit, we've had a suicide. What do we do? And we go, well, we've actually got the right place to go to. Whereas in the past, what we used to do was you've had a suicide. Okay. Like we, we weren't providing anything because we didn't know what to provide. And if we were going to provide something, we have to make it up on the spot. Whereas this organization, they've done the evidence base. They've got the people trained. So we go, yep, they're the best of the business they can provide you with the specific support you need for that self-harm or for that suicide. So that welfare aspect is really important for us um, because it just adds a, a layer of what we call a safety net around communities. So if we get a phone call from a community, hey, we've had a young person who's self-harmed, what do we do? We go, right, here's some guidance. Is it really bad? Yes, it is, Brent. Here's an organisation you can call who are going to be able to provide you with specific support for that situation. Uh, then we've got the clothing brand that just started. Um, you're wearing the t-shirt now and, and the hoodie down there as well. Um, so we'll start to push that a little bit more, but you know, just to try and build a little bit more awareness and then different events that occur over, over the year, you know, charity matches and that sort of stuff. But coming up in March is our big one, our, our mates in March campaign. So nine days of nine K. So any nine days in March, go and run or walk nine Ks. Got to do it with a mate. That's the whole point. Start a meaningful conversation when you do it. It's pretty surprising the conversations you have when you're running and you're like, I'm going to die, but you're not going to die. It's fine. Like you're not going to pass out. You can talk and run at the same time. It's pretty interesting what the body can do when you need it to. Um, or you can pick your own challenge. So for me, I'm going to do 90 push-ups a day. I'm not going to drink throughout March. I'm going to play nine hours of golf just because I like golf and why not. Um, and I'm also going down to a local golf center that's got a simulator. We're going to hit 900 shots to try and get a hole in one. Yeah, a lot of mates <laughs> like golf. So we're just going to sit there and have a good afternoon, five hours of just like, let's try and get a hole in one. Pelting it. Yeah, just try and pick one hole, one par three, and just like, can we get a hole in one? So oh, my Lord. Anyone can pick your own challenge. Um, our national manager, Tim, he's going to run for nine hours. So he's starting at 3 a.m. in the morning and finishing at 12 uh, midday. He's going to run for nine hours. Yeah, 
just what? nuts. It's not going to be very fast. We've already like, <laughs> we've already yeah, covered that. He's holding a sub. Yeah, no, no, no <laughs> sub four Ks here, minute Ks. But oh so everyone's got different challenges they're going to do. I think one of our ambassadors and, and facilitators over in WA, Sally's getting her swim club and they're going to do nine hours of swimming. Mm. So just get two lanes and just have someone going for nine hours in those two lanes. Uh, so you can do whatever you really want. If you want to just get one, you can do the nine days and nine K, but you jump onto our website, register, get a singlet and then fundraise because as a charity, we're built on donations, man. We're built on yeah. fundraising. So I'm keen to sort of get into that aspect yeah. as well. Where does nine come from firstly? It's nine suicides a day. Okay. Yep. Brilliant. Brilliant. I wanted to ask, oh, actually I wanted to comment on the idea that I think it's amazing that as an organization, you've recognized your capacity and sort of your lack of knowledge in particular spaces or lack of facilities and an ability to navigate it and like having the humility to be able to flick it over to another organization another organization who is a bit more tailored towards say it was self-harm or suicide i think that's incredible yeah we we do it a lot with other orgs that are um doing the same thing that we are which is education programs like we came together as a team and we went you know there's there's funding out there and we can get into the funding aspect but there's funding out there for inclusion and for consent you know in schools and obviously a really needed topic but we know that we went well we would have to fully create new sessions do we really want to go down that aspect are we um are we experts in this area? And the answer was no. Like we'd have to do a lot of training to be able to create those sessions and then get that funding. So when we do get a phone call from um, a school and they're like, hey, we want, you know, a consent and an inclusion session or um, a gender equality session, sorry, not inclusion. We go, okay, look, we don't really do that. Tomorrow man, tomorrow woman do. Or the man cave do it really well. Um, so we don't go, no, nah, we'll just tailor it and we'll just go and get it just because we want the money. No, nah, hey, these organizations over here they do it brilliantly there's also you know mindful oz has a great primary school program that matt and his team have created that's absolutely incredible we don't go to primary school so if we get a primary school we just go hey mindful oz they're, they're they're killing it they're rocking it in that aspect they do a lot of other amazing things too and so do those other organizations but right now like if you want primary school go to mindful i love that so much it's about like supporting local organizations and people who can do it better as well and having that humility i i Love it so much. Talk to us about running a charity, mate. Like we're in a very capitalist society. Everyone's sort of out there to either get a wage. You know, the idea of buying a house is so scary for young adolescents as well. We might not even be able to unless something changes in the near future. But everyone's sort of chasing money and chasing an income, having a steady stream. What's it like running a charity? Where does the income come from? Funding? How does it all work? Yeah, I, I fell into the the trap when I took over as CEO to run it as a charity, whereas I really should have been running it as a business um, from the start. And I was sort of like, okay, this will be really easy. We'll find funding. Like, not really easy, but we'll find funding and that's sort of how it'll be. Whereas my mindset should have been, hey, I know how to run businesses, so let's run it as a business. And that's been a, a flip for probably the last year and a half has been, I need to run this as a business rather than just running it as a charity. So really for anyone out there that doesn't really know how a non-for-profit works, whatever money you come in has to be spent where your non-for-profit's mission is. So if we get $100,000 in, we have to put that $100,000 into potentially wages, which is where a lot of your donations go to because you need people to organize to then actually go out and run the sessions and most and all of our core staff run our sessions. 
Um, so to make it the, their wages to then go out and actually run programs. And that's where the difference in terms of percentage really comes in. So if you go to someone like a Beyond Blue, they have to have a lot of administration because they're such a big organization. So you may be donating to Beyond Blue and your money may be going to pay for someone's wage, but what they're actually doing in that business allow or in that charity allows the charity to still survive. So that's where people are like, oh, I don't want to give to a charity and just go to someone's wage. Well, actually, what that person's doing is actually really beneficial so that there's other people in the organization that can make the impact. Not everyone can make an impact in an organization. So as a charity, as a non-for-profit, you have to show where that money's going. Um, but without donations and without fundraising, charities do fall apart because it is really difficult to at times go out there and go, here's a service and here's a product. And they go, you're a charity. And they go, yeah. And they're like, oh, cool. So we're getting it for free. Now there's some organizations out there that have really good donors. So philanthropic donors, we've got some really great philanthropic donors, but they like to be silent, which is fine. Um, And then you've also got government funding. So the philanthropic donors that put money in, sometimes they go, we want it to go to this certain area. They may go, I want it to go into Northern New South Wales. So we can only spend the money in Northern New South Wales. That's just how it is to be able to go and provide free our, our free program there or our resources into that area. Um, for other donors, they just go, go spend it wherever. Um, and sometimes we might go, well, actually we can't provide free programs because we've got to be able to budget that money to go into wages or go into marketing or go into something else. So we have to have to move that money around. So it's still like running a business just without the profit aspect, the the profit aspect aspect as well. So we don't get bonuses. So whatever your wage is, your wage is, um, you, if we say turn around tomorrow and we got government funding and we get say a million dollars a year for government funding, then we've set it up that we can turn around to most communities and go, well, our program's free. Whereas right now we're still a fee for service. So it's still costs to run our program. So if a sporting club comes through and goes, we want to do this, we go, look, it's going to cost you this much. You can go to your local council. They usually have grants that you can apply for um, as a community, uh, as an organization in that community. And that'll cover our fee. Um, But for a lot of uh, what we do, going to a community or going to an association or sporting association and going, this is how much it's going to cost for all your clubs. They go, yeah, not a chance. Whereas if we had that funding come in and had those really big donors, we could turn around and go, we can provide our program for free to all your clubs. And we know how much, we know what that limit is and it's not, from what we know in the market research and from um, talking to government, we know it's not expensive. We know for what we do, we're very efficient, um, but it's not very expensive at all. But non-for-profits are really interesting places. If you're thinking about, I really want to donate to whether it's us or to a charity, trust me, please donate because that money goes so far to that. A lot of the donors that we got last year, we were able to turn around and go, okay, we can actually give free programs out to communities that really, really need it um, because we're really good with our other revenue. Yeah. So speaking about donations, I think a lot of charities and non-for-profits are like, you know, your money goes so far uh, or like more than you know, um, like those phrases. And that's, Mm. I I completely can understand why. But Z asked a really, really good question. Um, And he asked like, what are the impacts of different tiered donations? So for example, what could... $10 bring, $20 bring, $50, $100 X amount bring. 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it really depends on the organization you're giving to. So for large charitable organizations, $10 is not going to do much at all. Um, for us, multiple $10, you know, if we get a hundred bucks, then we're going to be able to, uh, put someone who really needs it through that welfare, um, support. So we're going to be able to go, cool. We've got someone come through. We know that they can't afford it. We can go, okay, yep, we'll pay for that one. And and away we go. So the bigger you get, the harder it is. And I think the, the hard part on it is that what a lot of people don't understand is lots of little donations end up being lots of money. So if you've got a hundred people that give $10, that's a thousand dollars. Uh, so that's a really big aspect to then go, well, with that thousand dollars, we can actually do a fair bit. If it's OTLR, we can do a fair bit. We can run one of our sessions in a community that needs it. We know we can actually just take that money and go and do it. And away we go for a big organization. Who knows? It may just be a drop in the water and they go, cool. Let's just add it to the pool. Um, but the other thing, if you are going to donate is trying to really research, well, what's the actual impact that organization has created? So for me, and this is going to get super controversial and, you know, you can ask a bunch of questions on or people can get angry, but there's been a lot of donations going to mental health and there's been a lot of donations going to mental health organizations, big and small. There's a lot of small organizations out there that don't, that, that do some great things and they've definitely saved some lives, but also aren't doing the things that big organizations do that probably need a lot of donations coming in as well. Suicides are still going up. So we're all fighting over, all mental health organizations, we're still fighting over a small amount of funding and we're fighting over people in the community that are struggling with the cost of living. We're asking them to donate um, and we're still fighting all over all those same people but suicides are still going up. So what's the actual impact of your organization? Now I can only talk on what we do in that if mates in March goes really, really well, we haven't had a suicide in any of our connected communities for two and a half years. So we know the impact that we're doing is going great. We can get out to more sporting clubs and schools and businesses. Awesome. But if you're going to donate and someone goes, oh yeah, we're going to be able to do this. Well, show me what you've already done. Show me what you've done on very little money first before we start throwing hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars at you for you then to then show us your impact, show us your impact first on little amount of money. And then we can get there. So it's a, it's a, very murky world when it comes to funding. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Uh, I think like from a consumer perspective as well, you know, you're told to donate to XYZ organization and you're like, well, which one is different? Like which one aligns with me a bit more? So um, do you have any advice in terms of navigating the murkiness of it? I think when it comes to donating for people, you've got to go with your heart and where it actually lies for how it fits inside you. So if we're in the mental health space, there's going to be organizations out there that, as I said before, they do the consent and the equality. Now we don't do that. So if that's something that you really resonates with you, then go and don't donate to us, go and donate to somebody else. Um, so they can keep doing that amazing work. They can keep running those sessions. They can keep paying their facilitators to go out there and do it. They can keep paying their researchers to find new evidence-based ways of getting that education across the right way. You know, as, going back to that, it pays for a wage. You may pay for a researcher who researches to find new and better educational ways of doing things. If sport and, you know, drugs and alcohol and gambling and, you know, inclusion, respect and leadership and culture resonates with you, then donate to OTLR. Um, we know that we've got 
37 sporting associations around the country that want our program in their communities, but they all can't afford it. And that's not just they can't afford our program. They're really struggling to hold on to their own staff at this point in time, let alone donate to a, a charity like ours. So find one that really fits with you. It could be the um, Breast Cancer Foundation. It could be Peter Mack. It could be you know, whatever, Leukemia Foundation or the World's Greatest Shave, all those sorts of things. Uh, if it resonates with you, then donate your money there because there's going to be a lot of people out there that can only donate once or twice a year. Definitely, man. Um, this one, this question might be a bit heavy, but Go does it, it upset you that um, I've just done a bit of Googling mm. that I guess the Australian government revenue, this is tw- actually, wait, this is 2018, 2019. So my figures might be wrong, but I feel like they'd be pretty consistent with the amount of money that's coming in. It was $493.3 billion and you may get funding sometimes or you may not. Yeah. So the government's a really interesting one because we were, you know, advanced talks with the Liberal government before they the la- they lost to Labor. And the way it sort of works is when there's a change in government, new ministers come in, they then have to learn their um, position and that takes time. And then you've got to build up a new relationship with the new minister. Now, if they already knew they were getting in, they've probably already built relationships with different organisations. This is not just in mental health. This is in transportation. This is in everything. So unless you're ahead of the curve on who's going to get voted in and what's going on, you really need to be trying to build relationships with lots of different ministers. When it comes to that money, um, obviously talking to a lot of social organisations like ours that are in the preventative space, it's the hardest space to get funding because it's like, what's your impact? And it's like, I don't know. We went out and ran this session, but I don't know if that person went home and went, I don't want to take my own life tonight. There's no way of quantifying. Yeah. You can't get that data. You can get feedback to go. That was really great. And you know, I was in poor mental health and I'm doing better now, but it's how do I then turn around that in six months time, that conversation with that person had with that guy or that their friend over here, was off the back of our program. Like you just don't know. And we're not the only ones. There's a lot of organizations that are in similar spots that we're trying to get that impact across to people and get that prevention. I'm going to get the numbers super wrong. And you know, this is just me pulling numbers out of a hat now. Is there this around the ballpark? But for someone who goes through mental health uh, services, so they present to ED, they're really, really struggling with their mental health. It costs the government $934 a day, something like that. With prevention and education and those sorts of things for everybody, not just that individual person, but their family as well to you know support them through it, you can almost cut that in half. So the government's saving money if they provide more education at school level or at community level for people, but it's about trying to get across to the government that that's a real, you need to put money into prevention. Now that's not to say that them putting money into um, postvention or when it's a crisis area, because that's 110% needed. We still need all that funding, but there also needs to be some funding and some, uh, they need to identify the right organizations to put money in so that, for example, like tomorrow, man, tomorrow woman, they do amazing stuff. It's not our org. And I'm going to use them as an example they're absolutely incredible. But if they had more funding, they wouldn't just be in New South Wales and Vic. They could be in every state. So if they were in every state, now we're talking that the impact that they create and they do fly around the country, but the impact that they create would be so much bigger 
than just them being based in New South Wales and Vic. Now, another one is the Man Cave with Hunter Johnson and his team, absolutely incredible. If the government turned around and went, hey, Hunter, how much do you actually need to make this nationwide in every single school across the country? And they gave him the money to do it. Shit, I would love to see that. I would fucking sit back and smile that I know their program's awesome. I know they've had a massive impact. The government should be going to them, how much do you fucking need? Yeah, it's hard to have that like holistic and actually more that foresight as well, particularly when you're in government as well. I'm not too well versed on it, but um, it's one of those things that I'm just like, oh, you know, they obviously provide the funding. They're the ones that are giving the tick of approval to be like, yep, we can give you that money. And it's really hard as a charity as well when I guess we're in a state of inflation and the cost of living crisis is very apparent. So people are more likely to hold on to their dollars instead of, be altruistic, be philanthropic. And, and that's where corporates over. come in or small business owners. You get to the end of tax time and you're, you own a construction company. Instead of going out and buying a third drill you don't need, right? Or a third pack of tools that's going to cost you 1500 bucks, donate it to a charity and you still get your tax return back. Like you still get a, a tax deductible receipt. Oh, is that from an actual that. thing? Yeah. Oh, cool. So we're at, so there's um, tiers to charities. There's DGR3, which is just your foundation. So you still run like a business. You still got to pay tax and GST and all that sort of stuff. DGR2, um, you can get some donations come in and then DGR1, full donations from anybody will give you a receipt and you can claim that back on tax. So it's tax deductible receipt. Um, so that's pretty awesome to be able to do that as a DGR1. And that's when if you're ever going to donate to a charity, make sure they're a DGR1 first mm. so you can actually claim that back. Um, but just going back to like where the money should go and the government having that foresight, there was a really good thing from um, Bernard from Live for Life, runs an amazing rural education mental health program for youth. And he said, he, he brought it up and he explained it really well. He's like, we're all say 22 charities fighting over a silo of one bunch of funding, right? And it was really good. It was like, he put a couple of people off, but I was like, this that's an awesome way of looking at it. He goes, if the government actually took some time and did some research and went, well, actually these four charities are the ones making the most impact, let's just give them the money and see what they can do with it. And if they, in two years time that they haven't made an impact more than what they, we thought they could, then okay, we go back to fighting. But the government comes out and goes, here's 50 grand, hundred charities apply for it. And then they've got to try and filter through the muck. And it all comes down to how good your grant writing is. Whereas if they actually went out there and researched the organizations, they'd get the right ones that are making the right impact. 100%. It's about that accountability as well from an organisational perspective as well because you can all be applying and have this great message as well, but what's the actual impact that you're having? Yeah, and what's, you know, if you are you an organisation out there at the moment that's actually networking with other orgs? Like we do it all the time. Like we're I'm catching up with Tackle Your Feelings on Thursday just for a coffee just to see, hey, where are you guys at? How can we help? What can we do? Because we know the impact they're creating. Uh, the other thing that, you know, in Australia, it's really easy to create a charity. If you're good at paperwork, you can create a charity tomorrow. You've just got to get the right paperwork, get yourself a board, make sure you've got a lawyer on there that can overview the the papers that you've got to submit. Um, it's really simple. And people are like, oh, I want to do more in the community. It's like, okay, well, guess what? So do we. But you go and create a charity and you take more of that fundraising pool, you take more of that government pool, you're doing the right thing. And, and look, we want more people out there pushing the message of mental health. We want more people out there starting 
the message or starting their own charities and that sort of like we obviously we want that because suicides are still going up so we need more people in the organ in the field but there also needs to be a bit more accountability from those that give away yes you can be a charity because all right well if you're out there running that schools program you've now got to go through the eight years of shit that we've gone through to get our program evidence-based now content's really really good you've been in it for one week and now you're out there running a session where's your evidence base like we've spent so much money to get here and now you're out there taking a fee for service and and sort of taking away what we could do to try and grow and expand it's a real hard juggling game in that Absolutely. aspect. That's like your shot to the market. It's like barrier of entry. But well, then, nah, it's, it's, yeah. hard. It's, it's hard, mate. Like I can totally understand as well. So what would your advice be? It's like, would you rather someone jump into say OTLR and contribute in that way? Would you tell them to start their own charity? It's hard. It's a hard one. I, I sort of sit on the fence. I'm like, fucking do both. Because <laughs> yeah. if I put my CEO hat on, I'd love people to like contribute to OTLR and become part of our community and do all that sort of stuff. But then I've also got to remember that we don't have enough work to take on all these people. Like we don't, because we're still fee for service. If we were free, we take on heaps of facilitators, heaps of welfare professionals to go out and run the program. But people come all the time and they go, I want to be a facilitator with OTLR. And it's like, that's awesome. But I've already got 60 people around the country that are already facilitators that I can't give enough work to. They're, they're casuals. They're, they're champion of the bit to go out there and do it. And these people that are like part of our facilitator team, they're like, I want to do more. And it's like, I'd love to be able to give you more sessions, but I just don't have them because, you know, whatever barriers may be, most of the time it's financial. Um, so they're like, oh, I'm going to go to start my own thing. And it's like, like take, we want you, but I'm yeah, like, yeah, it's take, like this paradox. Hey. It's like, take my CEO hat off. And I'm like, <laughs> fuck yeah, go start your own thing. Like spread more of the message. If you can get out there and like spread more of the message, I want you to do that because it's going to stop suicides. It's going to promote more positive mental health. And then my CEO hat's just like, yeah, I'm going to support you because I love you and you've done heaps for us. And I hope you come back and facilitate for us while doing your own thing. But now you're taking a sporting club that we could get into, that we could get FIFA service for, or we could get into with our funding. And it just... Yeah, it's a big who knows. Literally, um, right? It's almost like is a merger of like all the charities on the cards. Like, I, I, it's it's honestly, it's something I've said for a, a long, long time mm. because I look at it, I take my lens off, and I look at it, and I go, it's so fucking frustrating because why? And they and they and they do the big, and I'm just going to use mental health because that's the one I've researched. They all talk to each other, and they all support each other. But I'm like, hey. Beyond Blue's got a helpline. Lifeline's got a helpline. Have you ever had a look at how many fucking helplines there are out there? There is 374 helplines for mental health and, you know, domestic violence and LGBTQI. 374. Do you know what the fucking number for Lifeline is? 131111. No. No, it's 131114, but you were close. Close. Eight years I've done this. Two people have got it right. Sessions I ask it every time. Why the fuck do we have 374? Why are we creating new helplines? for the same thing why are we not just why is someone in the government looking at this and just going why don't we just fucking bring this together and make it one number now there is a guy out there that i've had meetings with that is actually campaigning to the government to create a three-digit number that you call that number it's like calling triple zero and you go i'm going through domestic violence i need help and then they connect you with the right organization but why is there not someone out there going okay, we don't need 15 numbers for mental health. We need one organization to do that really well and let's give them all the money. So 
why is Lifeline Beyond Blue not coming together and just creating one helpline? Why does Beyond Blue need theirs? Why does Lifeline need theirs? Why does Lifeline need guest speakers? Why does Beyond Blue need guest speakers? Why do we need guest speakers? Like, why the fuck is Beyond Blue not doing it? They're the ones with all the money. So it's this big concoction of, okay, well, we saw a need or Jake saw a need. Let's go create this in sporting clubs because that's what he grew up in in 2015. Now there's a lot of people doing sporting clubs and awesome. Let's get to more sporting clubs because OTLR can't do it all ourselves. But when does it become a point where we go, fucking let's just combine and let's just go to the government and go, it's going to cost this much and we're going to be able to get to all these sporting clubs. And then all these organizations come together and go, we're going to be able to get to all these schools. And then organizations come together and go, we're going to put all our fucking numbers into one number. So it's just super simple. Someone can call us and go, I am an LGBTQI person who is struggling with anxiety. This is what I need. And they go, Brent, we'll just transfer you to that department. You can get your support. What needs to change? I think it's that really in, in my, in, in terms of business or in life or what, what are you on about? This, this yeah, whole okay. thing. Like what do you feel like is the right step to take it's, to change it? It's the networking side of things. It's the, the ability to, in a mental health charity world, in the non-for-profit world, especially now, there's no overarching person that goes or organisation that looks at it and goes, this is an absolute mess. We need to bring certain charities together or we need to bring certain organisations together. We need to stop creating new numbers that people can call because there's already that organisation out there that's already struggling to have that come up. Like there was an organisation called Griefline they did heaps. They didn't get their government funding renewed and they lost everybody. So they'd build all that up to get to a certain point. So what needs to change, I think, is a lot more networking between the organizations, between the charities that are out there and going, how do we either start to work together more or merge together certain departments and go to the government or wherever we're getting our funding and going, this is just, it's just astronomical that, these guys do this really well. Let them be the specialized in it. And when everyone, when someone comes to us, we're not going to go, yeah, we do that. We're going to go, no, that's the organization that you need. And we need to start to work together. I think, um, yeah, that's brilliant. And I know that you would, I just, I'm questioning like CEOs of other. They won't. Yeah. It, and it's so interesting and ironic almost because we're in a charitable space. We're in a space where you know we want to spread the message. We want to bring awareness to mental health. We want to bring suicide numbers down, but there's no communicating because everyone wants to be at the top. Everyone does. And, and money makes the world go around. It really does. Like there has been research papers and articles and projects done. And we're just dipping our toe into research at the moment because there hasn't been a research project in mental health in sport on the scale that we could do it. And we know that through partnering with Latrobe. So we're collaborating with them at the moment to create something pretty cool. Um, but we were looking at different research projects that in sport that have occurred that got millions of dollars for people to go and research for, you know, a small amount of responses on their surveys that then got the recommendations from it, that then nothing happened. So do we want more research and more money going into that to go for what we already know, or would we rather have taken that millions of dollars and put it into a practical organization that could do the research while going out there and running sessions, providing welfare, doing these sorts of things. That's where, yeah, it's a very frustrating world. 
Yeah, I don't even know where to go from that because it's yeah. just like one of those things that... It's almost another whole podcast, yeah, really. Yeah, literally, it, it's it, like a loop. It is like a loop. And I think it's not just mental health. It's it's so many different things. Like I was listening to a podcast with um, how pharmaceuticals work in, in America, right? And that's just astronomical, mind-melting. Don't go down that rabbit hole because you'll get stuck. Um, you then go into obviously cancer research and, and those sorts of things. And you're like, okay, well this laboratory is doing really well, but this, they're not getting the funding that they need because they're about to get onto a breakthrough because the money's going over here. Cause they had a better grant writer. And it's, it's so weird. Like it, the whole non-for-profit where grants go and where people donate their money. It's just, it's such a weird, it's a weird world. Yeah, it, it is a weird world, but it brings me to um, something that uh, like a coach or, or storytelling coach, Anthony is on about and it's the idea of how well can you tell your story? How well can you sell yourself? Because unfortunately, people are going to pick that person. The person that's able to sell themselves, the person that has a more eloquent story, more grabbing, more compelling, and they're going to pick them. And it's just so unfortunate. And it sort of dissociates from the real goal, the, the holistic goal of we want to bring suicides down. We want to bring awareness to mental health. We want to cure cancer. But everyone's trying to like jump on top of each other and undermine one another. Yeah. And look at OTLR and this is on me. Like I've, I can tell my story. I can tell stories and they're kind of entertaining in some little way. I don't think I'm the greatest storyteller in the world. Done pretty well. <laughs> no, I don't. I appreciate it. It's imposter syndrome going back into it. Like it's just me. Like every, I get nervous every time I go and run a session. Like it's just how it is. Um, but when I took over, it was sort of like, well, let's get a really good product and a really good, efficient service that people are going to take. It's going to have an impact on them. And that's what we wanted to create. And we've created that. Um, whereas there, it's not just in the mental health space, but a lot of organizations, they'll tell their story first. They'll build this massive community and then they'll create a service. And to start off with, that service may not be that great. It's not very polished. They haven't done the research and got the evidence. We've gone backwards. Our community, if you go on onto our social media, I think it's six and a half thousand followers on our Instagram because we don't promote it at our sessions. Now we've done over 55,000 people. We should probably have 55,000 followers, but none of us really sit because none of us that work there, our whole focus is what's our impact. How do we make sure people walk away with the right information? Now we're at the end and we're going to be like, can you please follow OTLR? Cause we, <laughs> yeah. we know the power of Instagram, but we also know the power of storytelling and none of us are, none of us have really sat there and gone, yeah, I'm going to get on Instagram and I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to get on social media. Or I'm going to get on YouTube. Or I'm going to go on podcasts because where our whole focus has been has been how do we support the communities we're a part of? Whereas, as I said to you before we started, getting on this podcast is really cool for me because the team's gone, you need to go out there and start to tell more of the story and sell your story. Me, sell OTLR story and sell what we're trying to achieve and sell's the right word here. It's it absolutely yeah. is. And I, I can imagine the stigma around it as well. I was like, oh, sell, but you're a charity. Like, what do, what do you mean? But, mate, I implore you to go on everyone's podcast. Like, you have a story to tell. And, and even to the listeners as well, like, the imposter syndrome is so bad at the moment where people are like, oh, I don't have anything to say about myself. Like, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not qualified. Like, yeah. And I, go out and tell that story. Yeah. Like, and I think for a lot of people, and you know, we get this at sessions. They're like, oh, I don't want to, you know, what, what are people going to think? Or what if they start saying anything bad? 
And there's a really, really good song by called Rain City Drive. Like I'm an emo kid growing up. There. Like I, I, I don't really care what anyone says. I'm a fucking emo kid. Like I went to good oh, things. That's it. Oh, mate, hundred percent. Like I love it. Um, Rain City Drive. The song's called Talk to a Friend. And in there, it's um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to my friends the way I talk to myself. And so one of the big things that I've been working on over the last sort of two, three months since the team's like, you need to get out there. You need to do more of this. Get more on social media one of the holdups has always been that negative comments because I've already got my mental health isn't great all the time. And, you know, I'm pretty hard on myself, but also what I'm thinking is like, well, fuck it. Because what I say to myself in my head every day, it's fucking torture living up here. Most of the time, no one's going to be able to say anything that bad to me in my whole entire life. And no one's ever said the stuff that I say in my head to myself ever in my life. They've never turned around and gone, you can't do this. You can't do that. Or you suck and all those sorts of things. Trust me, the shit that you're saying inside your head about why you can't go out there and do it is worse than anything anyone else is going to say. And you're going to see obviously comments on social media and people are fucking dicks, you know, but they would never, they'd never say it to your face. No way. But whatever you're saying in your head right now, about and all the negative things trust me push it away this is coming from someone who 24 7 that voice in my head is fucking torture but no one's ever actually said it to me so you're actually just putting your own barrier in place of telling your story yeah it's that spotlight syndrome you're your own worst critic um and i think like we try to create this reality that isn't actually is a real that isn't actually a reality yeah and there's so many other like it's um I was listening to a guy today just before on the way over here and he was saying how um, 85% of what you think in your mind about how the future is going to be doesn't come true. And he goes, that's so much wasted thoughts. And I was like, fuck yeah, man, that's, that's so good. Why didn't you tell me that when I was six? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Save a lot of, um, oh, oh God, 100%. A lot of like, thinking. yeah, oh, I can't go to, I can't do this because of what this is going to happen. Like 85% of that shit's probably, and probably 99% of that shit that you're thinking right now is not going to happen. So you're putting all this expectation on a future that's probably not going to fucking happen anyway. That's it. Todd, mate, it's been incredible uh, speaking to you, getting to know a bit about you and also OTLR, like, I'm so keen to see what you guys are up to in the future. And obviously you mentioned before the March nine, nine for nine, is it? Or yeah. Nine? So mates in March, mates nine, in March. nine, any nine days in March, run or walk nine K. Uh, you can register through our website um, and donate and fundraise be huge for us. Um, we're really trying to get as many free programs and as many sporting communities as we possibly can this year. Um, and so if we have a really good March and a lot of fundraising, we can get to more communities, which would be awesome. Is there any way that um, the listeners could support you? Uh, look, follow us on Instagram. Probably be one. Now our marketing manager will kill me if I don't fucking say that. So <laughs> at OTLR, please go and follow us. It'd be great. <laughs> Apparently social media is awesome for us. Um, but look, Donations in March is going to be awesome. If you're a small business, you can reach out to us at info at otlr.org.au and you can donate directly to us. We'll send you a tax deductible receipt. Um, But for us, as I said, we're trying to get into as many sporting communities for free as we possibly can because there's a lot of them that need it and a lot that call us and go, hey, we want to do it, but council doesn't have any funding. We don't have any sponsors this year. You know, we're struggling to even keep the team afloat and everyone's really struggling with their mental health because of it. And most of the time we say, don't worry, we'll be there. Um, but to be at least have that backing of, of some financial would be awesome. So Brilliant. Um, yeah, again, can't thank you enough for sharing your upbringing and, and also just the, the, the altruism that you're showing and, and bringing through OTLR. So um, 
yeah, I, I guess I'm happy to leave it there. Like I feel like this podcast has said enough about yourself and also OTLR. So be sure to follow at Life With Lamb Podcast and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks, mate. <laughs>